Yeah, so I think it's interesting. Um, that's actually not where I started. Um, this, this grew out of my, my dissertation. Um, and that's really not the interpretation I began my research with. Um, I should say that I was a philosophy major as an undergraduate, which explains a lot of what interests me um, as a historian. Um, and before I was a philosophy major, I was a, I was a Talmud student um, growing up as an Orthodox Jew. And so I was very interested in sort of clashes of ideas and debates about, you know, doctrine and such. Um, Jeremy, want to hear something impressive? Do you know who the Vilna Gaon is? Of course. Yeah, I'm like his 13th descendant in general line, descended from his third son, Yehuda Leib. Well, that's, I mean, that's... I mean, you could tell. You could tell, naturally. (laughs) That's as close as you can get to, like, almost a royal line in rabbinic Judaism. Yep. Well, Um, not a surprise, That's the reason why I wanted to do this show with you, actually, is is because of that. (laughs) Some Israeli genealogy student did their dissertation research on, uh, it's called Eliyahu's Branches on the Vilna Gaon's family. And I'm I'm in there. I'm one of the branches. (laughs) So I should just tell you, if you'll still have me, um, I come from much more humble family beginnings. My... My grandparents in Poland were, um, at least on my father's side, were illiterate um, and members of the Communist Party. So uh, I, I don't have any, uh, you know, um, very impressive rabbinic origins in my family. Um, but I'll forgive you. You can still be on. Sorry to interrupt, though. <laughs> no problem. But I'm not, I was saying that by way of background to explain why, um, you know, my inclination is, is very much towards um, intellectual history and sort of, you know, clashes of ideas and doctrine. And um, that's part of what drew me to the silence that we spent in the first place, which is the idea of you know, clashes over interpretation of Marxism. Um, and then I spent, you know, a couple of years in the archives in Moscow and Beijing. And the more I read, the more I understood that, you know, this was not the, you know, scholastic debates, you know, of, you know, how many angels can dance the head of a pin that I imagined. These were different revolutions that had been, you know, sort of put into the same, you know, ideological framework artificially. Um, but it hadn't really changed the fact that these, you know, came from different places. And so, you know, the, the history of revolution in Russia, right, is about the, you know, domestic political and economic system. It goes back to, you know, Decembrists and clashes between, you know, the nobility, the Tsar. It's really sort of this anti-autocratic, um, you know, impetus, while in China it really is an anti-imperialist impetus. And so the failure of the Chinese state to stand up to the West from the Opium Wars onward is what begins kind of the process of the disintegration of, you know, the Qing Empire and such. And, you know, Marxism had this, especially Marxism-Leninism, had this, you know, interesting way in which it combined imperialism and capitalism, you know, in this claim that imperialism is the highest age of capitalism. Um, But, you know, and that, I mean, there's a lot to that idea, but it became, you know, codified as canon. So therefore, to be anti-imperialist is to be anti-capitalist and vice versa. And it turns out these are not exactly the same thing. Um, and of course, you know, there are many different ways to be anti-imperialist. There are many things that go into imperialism besides just capitalism, right? There's, there's racism and there's religion and there's, you know, geopolitics. And there's a lot of things in imperialism besides capitalism. Um, there's science and technology. And so that's what I began to understand is that as I went to the archives, these were actually, they were using the same terms to talk about different revolutions. That's really interesting. And, and maybe you could talk a little bit, just contextualize the the two different communist parties um, and, and how they came to power and how that relates to the claim you're making that they, they had this unified ideological framework with basically ideas within it that were unable to be congruent with each other. So why don't we start with the Soviet CP and what you term their focus on anti-capitalism? Well, so again, the, the, 
the Soviet Communist Party is the outgrowth of sort of generations of Russian revolutionaries um, trying to challenge the Tsarist regime in more and more radical ways. And so, you know, the genealogy of, of the Soviet Communist Party goes back to, you know, the, the Decemberists of 1825, which are building upon, you know, the um, disappointment of the reforms of Alexander I, and then kind of the thick journals, you know, the, the early years of, you know, of, of Russian revolution intellectuals in the 1830s and 1840s under Nicholas I, um, which builds into, again, once again, the disappointment of the Tsar Liberia Alexander II um, in the 1860s and his failure to really, re you know, reform the Russian state. Um, he was, of course, assassinated. And, you know, there's this progressive, I mean, you've read The Idiots by, um, not um, The Possessed by Dostoevsky, right? I mean, it's, it's this, um, you know, trope throughout Russian literature of the, you know, the progressive more and more radicalization. And then what happens reaches point in the 1880s when you have the nihilists and, you know, and that's what Dostoevsky is writing about. And then there's this hunger for a more systematic critique of revolution.